This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to episode six of The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer, chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So hello again, my fellow rabbit holders. Hello, Kat. And Good how's everyone to today? Both. I'm really getting in the swing of this. You know, at first it was sort of revision like before an essay. Yes. And now it has to be a bit more considered because I'm up against quite startling opposition here. Well, it's a competition after all, isn't it? It is. Let's it's, face it. We're not here for fun. A little bit less of the competition <laughs> because I think the statistics <laughs> of that competition give a rather distorted view, if I may say so, <laughs> of the quality of contribution. Just say it. Well, we'll see, won't we? We'll see. I know notice you're not wearing your bow tie today, Richard. No, I'm not. The bow tie, it's a prototype, new look, right? Okay. Mm. Because now or, I'm not... Or an aberration. Well, that's the question, Charles. <laughs> yes. And I know I could absolutely rely on you and Kat to give me the it's valuable the feedback. Nudge. Maybe not what I want to hear, but what I need to hear. <laughs> so I'm wearing it for high and holy days, but today... Well, yeah. You're looking nice and snuggly and cosy today in your woolly jumper on a cold day, so that's Rather good. suave, if I may say so. Well, I've been upgraded, so... My friend's gone and done me a makeover. Yeah. She came round with bags of things and said, you know, just, would you like to just try this on? It's got a good eye for fashion. There you go. How about you? You're wearing that nice green jacket again, Charles. <laughs> again. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> just bring that in. <laughs> it's like yes, I am wearing it again. It's like a loden green. It is a loden green, and I feel it's a loaded compliment. It's not... It's honestly, how could you even think such a thing? I know. I and know. Kat, you always are a vision, if I'm going to say so. Well, thank you very much. We have the expression, there's no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothes. Hmm, so you just have to dress properly. Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> because at the end of last week's episode, we were all given a special subject to mm-hmm. go home and do our homework and research to talk about today, disappearing down our rabbit holes. And Richard... Yes. We are going to let you start today. Well, so... You can kick us off with your topic, which was that group of trade associations in the city of London known as livery companies. The livery companies, that's right. I was actually thinking carefully when I complimented you on your load and jacket. You know, you look, <laughs> because you are wearing your liveries in a way too. Livery was originally a dole of clothing, food and drink that was given to people who were part of the same trade. And from that, the clothing that developed into a sort of distinctive 
branding, if you like, for that particular profession. So in the City of London today, there are, I think, 110 livery companies now. Originally, there was what they called the Great Twelve, which were the early ones. And they preserve the names and, and sometimes of trades that we no longer know what they were. For example, would you know what a courier is? Do you know what a pattern maker is? Perhaps you do. All these things were trades in the City of London. When the City of London emerged as a, in the Middle Ages as a force for trade, those of like mind tended to congregate together. So I'm uh, associated with the Leather Sellers Company and the Leather Sellers associated with London Wall because traders, birds of a feather, right, flock together. And then it was necessary to regulate entry to that trade to make sure that you had the right people and also to regulate weight measures quality so they that's how it started as a commercial enterprise a way of ensuring the quality of the product and those involved in it were kosher you see what i mean and then that evolved over time we know there was evidence of them going on in the 12th century are they born out of guilds same sort of thing i mean they were their association was usually with the parish church because everything was in those days so you would have they still have parish churches have particular like st margaret patterns in the city of london associated with pattern makers patterns being kind of wooden overshoes that you would have worn to keep your clothes out of the mud or your Mm. feet out of the mud Mm. there's also the historic 12 there's an order of precedence which was being traders not it's an interesting thing because not only were they interested in banding together to preserve their mutual interests they were also of course competitors so you have this interesting thing of people who were both committed to each other's prosperity and advancement but also not at the expense of their own Mm. i mean the the historic 12 the first one mercers grocers goldsmiths fishmongers drapers i think i can't remember the rest of them but those were the historic original ones and then over the years more were added leather sellers That was established by Charter in 1444, quite late in the day, actually, because I think really the 1300s was the big period of expansion for that. And it was they obtained a charter from the crown, which legitimised them. And as they got legitimate and as trade grew over the centuries, they became rich and gradually became a bit disassociated from their original trades. Because you can imagine there aren't that many pattern makers or girdle makers or couriers or farriers in the city of London anymore but it tended to attract people who had some sort of connection with that sort of trade Mm. and those historic relationships have continued and of course they got richer Mm. and because they were enduring institutions that lasted beyond the lifetimes of individuals they got richer and richer and richer and so organizations which were founded really to protect the interests of people living a very basic almost subsistence kind of existence have become now really significant power brokers not only through their wealth but through ownership of property and in particular through in london to their relationship to the city authorities for example their involvement in the election of a lord mayor in the sheriffs and all the kind of governance of the city of london and its corporation you know things like Hampstead Heath, for example. Historic associations also with schools. One of the things that the guilds originally set up to do was to provide for the needs of its members. And one of the ways they did that was through education. So lots of independent schools have historic connections to livery companies. And there's a sort of, nowadays, there's a sort of social prestige that goes with this membership of these. I mean, I've got a, a cousin of mine who is the whatever of the Vintners. He's head of the Vintners. And I got a Christmas card from him and it, and it had that stamped on it. So it obviously meant an enormous amount to him. Yeah. And then pictures of him being enrolled where he looks a little bit like sort of Dick Van Dyke with a sweep going down the streets with a funny hat yeah. on. All these traditions are taken quite seriously. From the outside, they look sort of mildly comic, but to the people who are involved, they're massively important. Well, I think it's, it's rather like 
Freemasonry is that uh, you look at it from the outside and you think, why is that worth giving up two evenings a week? But actually for the people who get into it, something about solidarity, something about status, they're prestigious. And the rich ones also provide very handsomely for the delights of their of their members, a good seller. A good, mm. There's one livery company, I won't say which one, <clears throat> but the only time they've ever had a revolt in recent years between the members, the liverymen, and the court who run it was when the court decided it might be time to start putting in their cellar some new world wines. <laughs> so do they have sort of regulations or any sort of rules about quality? Is there quality control involved in them as well? So to be associated, to be a member, so traditionally would you have to uphold a certain standard is that part of their purpose as well not anymore because the connection to the trade is is so it's one of encouragement really or you'd be places where people who are particularly expert in a field might be members of your livery and be able to sort of discuss ideas the regulation is really about the membership and mostly about charitable giving because great power brings great responsibility mm. i think we would all agree and wealth does too so my own i mean i'm not everyone but my, the company i'm associated with leather sellers which is a particularly rich one because it owns a chunk of bishopsgate is an extremely generous donor to charities and because it has the resources to do so often a livery can donate to charities that other funders might be a bit reluctant to do so if you see what i mean that might be a bit controversial or not particularly eye-catching so it has a very significant and useful function and in supporting lots of projects that exist for the benefit of the non-members. I think we've got a comment from our disembodied voice coming up. There are four main entry points into a livery company. The first is by invitation, uh, the second by apprenticeship or servitude, the third by patrimony and the fourth by redemption. It's the path to the freedom for all others who do not qualify for apprenticeship patrimony or by invitation and requires the payment of a fine or a fee as well as an interview or other admission procedures yeah. if you want to be part of a livery the expectation firm expectation is that you will contribute actively towards it the reason they've lasted so long is because they've learned to adapt right to a changing reality and i think the old days when liverymen were seen as very pale male and stale and indeed they were and many still look a bit like that today that's changing now active effort into recruiting people who don't conform to that particular stereotype and it's good fun actually if you like mm. if you're a clubbable person and i am it's good fun the livery halls for example i mean every livery had its own hall the great fire of london and the blitz did away with many of them but the ones that survive are wonderful and if you often they're rented out for events the apothecary's hall i think you may yes. know which is the oldest, I think that dates back to the 1680s, something like that, post-Great yes. Fire. My own hall, the, the a Leather Sellers Hall in Bishopsgate, is the seventh one we've had. It was opened in 2017, and it's absolutely splendid and shows off the greatest achievements of leather technology that there are. So it becomes a sort of showroom, if you like, Museum for a particular almost, trade. Yeah. Are you ever tempted? To join one, I, I, I've not been invited and I'm, my apprenticeships have lapsed. But I think the the idea of them from the outside is slightly opaque and, and, and that they are, as you've touched upon, some form of Freemason's outfit. But I like the, what you've told us, what you shared with us today, is that they are a force for good. And mm. that's wonderful. And also, this will surprise you, I don't mind dressing up. <laughs> and if you do like to dress up. So we have a court service yes. uh, every year. And there's a bit with the installation of the new master. Uh -huh. And that's when you get the procession up Bishopsgate of people looking like they have just stepped out of Ireland or something. No, I, I know. I've seen you as Chancellor of the University of Northampton 
coyly dressed in your full regalia. <laughs> well, I've never quite been... Quite a lot, can I say, quite a long time before and after the ceremony you were in your kit. I just don't like to look like I've just been to wardrobe. <laughs> I, I, want my, I want my regalia to... If you're the wear master, it in. Wear it in, yeah. yes. If you're master of the leather sellers, you get to wear the garlands. Mm. And these are historic. And in fact, they date back to, again, I think the 16th century, I think, maybe the 17th. And it's a purple cap yes. with these kind of silver discs depictions of animals obviously the leather sellers kind of creatures you get hides from feature prominently in its heraldry heraldry is that the word in you know its image making mm. but there are modern ones so people for example there's some of the more recent ones there is the worshipful company of security professionals oh, yeah. yeah so if you're a bouncer mm. yes door security whatever you have your own livery company information technology do you have to wear a very tight tuxedo to those evenings do you think that doesn't quite fit i think a bomber well, jacket, bounces, a bomber jacket. A bomber jacket <laughs> and an earpiece will probably yes. do you all right one of the more recent lovely ones is lightmongers oh. i'm doing a thing for the lightmongers and light that's a recent livery that what are they are people who deal in electrical lighting oh, I see. but it's nice that they're called lightmongers yes. isn't it very good so that's one. Oh, well that's really good I, i'm glad we learned about that because that's yeah. You know, it's sort of in the background of the background, but now I'll, I'll think about that properly next time. Yeah. Well, also, if you're interested in seriously organising philanthropy, yeah. and that's a very good thing to be serious about, Absolutely. I think, then the livery companies are really good places to go and because they've been doing it for a long time and they have these long relationships that mm. extend over I knew about the school relationships. So haberdashers ask, is that from mm. the haberdashers? Yeah, or, yes. or Mercer's Company. I think uh, yes. Aundel, Laxton. I mean, lots of schools you'll find have these historic yeah. relationships to Libri Company. Do you know also that if you are the master of the Mercer's, mm. do you know what you are? No. You're number one of number one. Fulfilling <laughs> <laughs> new aspirations. If, if I ever got to be master of the I would be the only number one of number one who'd had a number one. Aww. Aww. And in several fields. Yes. Music and books. Thank you. Filling just, in the blanks. Yeah. Yeah. Really you left it there. Right. In for that, I'm going now. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's a nice place <laughs> to wind up. But I'd have to ask you about your favourite fact, though. Did oh, you find a f- favourite fact? Well, my favourite fact is the origin of the expression being at sixes and sevens. Mm. Do you oh. know what this is? No. No. Well, it was originally an argument between the Skinners and the Merchant Tailors. So when the uh, historic, the Great Twelve, the Order of Precedence was established in the 1500s, I think it was, disembodied voice will check that for me, I'm sure. There was a dispute over whether the Skinners or the Merchant Tailors were a six and number seven. And it was unresolved. So in the end, the Lord Mayor of London declared that they would change every Easter. So every Easter, they switched between six and seven and seven and six. And so that sort of state of confusion is referred to as being at sixes and sevens. That's very good. I would not have known that. It was 1485 by Lord Mayor Billesden. Thank you. It's annoyingly good. Yes, it is. Thank you. That's very very interesting and and something I knew nothing about. So I'm going to jump in next, actually, with my topic, because the previous few weeks I've gone for very sort of small, narrow scoped things I did treadmills and saunas and things so I thought I could go a bit bigger and I'm going to go for the egg today eggs. <laughs> eggs as a sort of tiny little subject to talk about excellent. because eggs yeah excellent so there's lots of puns so I'm going to try not to go all punny about it but actually I think eggs it's partially because I love eggs and I eat them a lot but also I think they're really really extraordinary because what other foods are so universal all over the world eaten by everyone eggs in some way or form but also so uh, has such a long history 
as a foodstuff, but also culturally, symbolically, religiously. You don't get anything else comparative to the egg, really. So I think that's why they're so hugely interesting. So I've got lots of, you know, lots of things I want to talk about, but been looking into the sort of origin of the history of people eating eggs. And I think people have probably eaten eggs as long as they've been people and birds and eggs, at least in, in a wild state. So we don't really know that. But domesticated eggs, we you know got a huge long history. Some of the earliest records of, of people, ancient Egypt, you got tombs with pictures of, of people having pelicans and baskets of eggs and, and so on. But chicken eggs, again, we, it's one of those we don't actually know when they were first domesticated. For certain, the most recent research is dating back to about three and a half thousand years ago. So Must from be pretty wild. early, isn't it? Yeah, so that's domesticated chickens. So probably coming from red, red jungle fowls being domesticated oh, yes. in Southeast Asia. And then they move west, so they reach Mediterranean Europe about 2,800 years ago. Mm. And then, you know, from that point on, everyone's everyone's eating eggs. But it's kind of going from a foodstuff to also all these religious and symbolic beliefs and how we use them for Easter. And in Christianity, obviously, the eggs are, are very important because they're so symbolic in so many different ways. But that's, there's, a, there's a dispute about that, Kat. Yeah. I mean, the obvious Im- imagery would be the potential for new life and it yeah. represents. But mm. a lot of people think that actually it symbolises the stone that sealed the tomb of Jesus. Oh, and egg rolling okay. at Easter was about the rolling away of the stone. Interesting. Yeah. But there's so many different religions as well that have had an interest in, in eggs. It's, well, it's a ready-made symbol, isn't yes, it? Yes, absolutely. Mm. It's just sort of, there's so many things in there. Can I say I've always had a theory with eggs that if they were much less commonplace and much more expensive, they would easily become a delicacy because they are delicious. Yeah. But because you can buy them for X in the supermarket, you just get used to them. But that level of luxurious taste is would normally be reserved for something incredibly decadent and expensive. Yes, and that is so interesting because certain types of eggs are luxuries. I mean, still, and have been for a long time. And the one that I'm really fascinated by is ostrich eggs. Oh, yes. Which got a huge history, actually, as a, a luxury item. As a food. As a food, but also as decorated. So they would have been eaten, but it's actually well, what we know really yeah. is the, the decorated eggs. Mm. And so we've got these ostrich eggs dating back to 3rd millennium BC. Goodness. Fantastically, beautifully decorated eggs in Mesopotamia and the sort of wider Mediterranean region. And they were actually traded really, really far and wide. So you have they're sort of blown out, so the, the contents are blown out. They then have to be dried for six to 24 months. And then the shells are decorated, carved, engraved. They've got these beautiful embellishments of ivory, metal fittings. There can't be any surviving. Oh, lots. So there's five in the British Cause, Museum. Because actually the, I've seen them, uh, more modern ones, 18th century, whatever. They're, they're very thick. Yeah. They're quite sort of, they're not like a... So they're not fragile. Not but they, fragile. Well, they are, they're recently fragile, but they were, so the ones that survive are usually from funerary contexts. Mm. So they've been in, in burials and they're elite, they're high status, so they've been protected. But yeah, I mean, compared to most eggs, they are mm. like quite protected. Like fine porcelain, because it belonged to elite people, it was better preserved because it's not yeah. in... Yeah, it's looked after. But I mean, these are absolutely fantastic and they were traded vast distances. So those eggs, and I guess because they are giant versions of normal eggs that everyone could eat, yes. make them really special, but they were traded. And actually even even just sort of catching, so this was before ostriches were you know, in any way domesticated. Mm. So even just finding the eggs and sort of stealing them is actually quite difficult because ostriches are quite dangerous. Absolutely. And they, can and kill they take a, it kill in turns. Well, I know they take it in turns. I can't remember which is... 
if you see ostrich pairs, one is a light colour and the other one is dark. It's because one does the daylight shift and the other one does the nighttime ones. Guarding their eggs. Yes. Because yeah. predators, because it's a big Absolutely. meal, isn't it? Yeah. Well, is well I, think, I think the average ostrich egg is something like 28 hen's eggs would fit into the average ostrich egg. So it's really? quite a lot of quite a lot going on in there. Yeah. So they were hugely popular for just thousands of years being traded. They've found them on shipwrecks as well, some of these really prehistoric early shipwrecks. But that's a really interesting thing because I've wondered about this. You know, we have access to all the sum of the world's knowledge at the click of a button, obviously. But for those who didn't, what came to them might give them a very partial view of the origin of that object, right? Yeah. So highly decorated. I'm fascinated by people who sort of imagine the beast from the bit that gets that far, i.e. the egg. What did they think ostriches were like? Did they, yes. they laid on eight eggs? Or, mm. Well, exactly. I mean, it could be sort of all sorts of mythology around that creature that could have been anything. So, ammonites in Whitby were often, a head was carved on them and they were seen as kind of serpents because you needed to give an account for this object that, made it sort of intelligible to the person who was seeing it for yeah, the first absolutely. time. <laughs> and we see that there's a lot of mythology about prehistoric objects as well, sort of prehistoric um, flint heads and things were called thunderbolts. So they were seen as mythical things because nobody uses them today, but they were found. It around. would make sense to a person who that yeah, made sense to. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, there's lots of things. And, and I think eggs and decorated eggs. So when we think of things like Fabergé eggs, which have sort of similar to those early ostrich eggs. So they've got, you know, metal bits Russian. around and all of that. That sort of really goes back thousands of well, years. But it was a tradition in, of the Romanovs, wasn't it, at Easter to give each other yeah. an egg and Fabergé mm. was court jeweller, right? Mm. That's right. So they were, they were sort of the late 19th and early 20th century, um, 50 of them made in total. And they were given sort of every year, I think Tsar Nicholas II gave one to his mother every year or something mm. like that. Egg again. Yes, <laughs> another one of those. Do you know so what? I, I think they are among the worst of kitsch. Fabergé eggs. Do you? Yeah. I look at them and I just think, that's just so hideous. Quite a lot. Do you get that? I don't know. I've always marvelled at how anyone could... I, I'm so un... Uh, so useless in my hands. I can't imagine anyone doing that. I was actually looking... There was a thing on social media recently where there was this huge unveiling of some modern sculpture and everyone's going mad about it, but it's pretty basic. And then cuts to how perfect the ancient sculpture was, you know, getting the, the sense of a dress being slightly lifted or whatever. And so I'm always marvelled. I mean, if somebody, if somebody can make any jewellery or anything. If they can actually make a boot jack, I'm slightly in awe of them. I, I, so I just look at it as an achievement rather than a thing of beauty. Hmm. Absolutely. I think our disembodied voice wants to say something. Tsar Nicholas II actually gave two away each year, one for his um, mother, the dowager, and the second for his wife. And just on the uh, the size of an ostrich egg, to Charles's point, an ostrich egg weighs up to two kilograms when full, with a capacity of more than one litre, and as Charles said, equivalent in volume to about two dozen domestic hen's eggs. Blimey. There you go, that's a lot. That's a lot it's of dinner. quite a lot, isn't <laughs> it? Scrambling that. I have had scrambled ostrich egg. I lived in South Africa for five oh, years. Yeah. It's very rich. I mean, there's an awful lot of it as well if somebody scrambled an ostrich egg. <laughs> Big pan. Um, yeah, I do remember it being particularly rich. It's like duck eggs are quite... Yes, a bit and you've got to cook. Much. Duck eggs are very dangerous. You've got to really cook them because the duck egg shell is porous. 
So the muck it's lying in will be absorbed to a greater extent to the average egg. Now you tell mm, me. Nice, nice. <laughs> but I, let's talk about eating eggs, though, because I think that's a really important thing. And I've got to, I of all the dishes I could have chosen to talk about, I'm going to have to choose my absolute favourite way of eating eggs, which I happen to know that you quite like as well, Charles, is the Scotch egg. The Earth Ecosse. Mm. Yes, I honestly think that is the best thing ever. It, it is, isn't it? Are you a fan yeah. of Scotch eggs, I love Richard? Chicken. It's not my favourite. <gasps> I can't bear it when you go to a service station and they've... Scramble the egg inside with mayonnaise and What's then reconstitute it. What is that? I think that's just being cheap, isn't it? That they don't yeah, actually nasty. use the whole egg. I, want, I but... want to. You suffer the pain of eating not very good sausage meat, and then you get the egg. It's your reward. Yeah, I know. No, it's... What, but is Scotch egg is it a Norwegian delicacy? Is it something you discovered here? No, I, I had never encountered one before I came here. So I think is I'm it... going to import them to Norway and make it a big thing. But is it conceivable <laughs> to you that uh, as a Norwegian, somebody might take an egg and wrap it in something savoury and I eat think it's it? Just a genius idea i mean why why would we but not also I can't the cooking see what the ones where you get where they're still runny inside yeah, yeah. and yet good. the white is hard and the outside isn't overcooked that's very clever quite I say, you both sound quite barbarian to me <laughs> the, the scotch egg which i do think of as something that's been lying limply congealing on a heated shelf in a service well the worst then part the you don't ones. eat the ones that are pink you no. know i hate that when you bite it and it's pink and it's full of nasties do you know where they come from? So obviously they're called Scotch eggs. I don't. I I'm now I'm going to say beerits. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. But they don't seem to have anything to do with Scotland. I think Indian. I'm going to go Indian. See, that's one of the theories. Oh, okay. So one well, of the theories. So there is a, an Indian dish. I just dish. wanted to trump Richard's beerits. That's yeah, well, well done. There is, <laughs> there is did, an Indian dish. That is, there's a similar thing with meat wrapped around an egg. And so one theory, we don't actually know, is that they might have been imported in mm. days of empire and all of that. Mm. But... Fortnum and Mason actually claim that they invented it in oh. 1738, to be specific. Mm. They say they uh, invented it as a uh, food for upper-class travellers on carriage rides. That's convenient. Yes. But isn't how many things were delicate as were invented as a means of holding something? Mm, like the Scottish pasta. But it's yeah. So, yeah. this is so practical the isn't Scotch it egg. it's sort of you can eat the wrapper you, can, that. you yeah. can eat the wrapper yeah. yeah and with the pasty they i mean this is a different subject but the cornish pasty you had to learn to throw away the crust because if you didn't you could get very ill with the things you've been mining so mm. the metals could get on there but don't they traditionally also have like a sweet bit yeah, one the whole end meal was in one well, the you'd have meat one end and jam the other i think didn't you yeah um mm, can i tell you my favorite egg dish yes do the omelette Mm. classically trained French chefs, the first thing they do when they arrive in the kitchen, bang out an omelette, just to make sure that they got their hand in and everything. Goodness. An omelette au fine herb, I think, is just one of the finest things you can possibly eat, but, a, yeah. but really, really, really perfectly done. You yes. can't beat it. Well, I'm not sure I agree. I think that the Scotch egg definitely beats it. I'm afraid Scotch egg does come first. Yeah, enough. sorry. Two, two against one here, Richard. Can sorry. I tell you my other egg fact that I'm fascinated by? Yeah. I was very lucky a few years ago to go to St Kilda the most outlying of the Outer Hebrides. It's so outlying, it barely is an Outer Hebrides, and the rock in the middle of the North Atlantic. And the community that lived there, they were all brought back to Glasgow because it was unsustainable in about 1930, I think. But they lived almost exclusively on the eggs of Fulmar. Goodness. So you know this idea we have that you eat one egg a week is good for you. There's a whole health thing. But remember the egg thing has become a mm. thing? They lived on, they would eat 30, 40, 50, extraordinary numbers of eggs because of where they lived and what they did. Yeah. 
and they seem and, to and they were okay okay well well they've sort of been they've been rehabilitated a bit haven't they eggs the whole sort of cholesterol thing they've now shown that that's not it's not mm. such a big deal and actually they are fine I like eat a, a lot of them boiled egg with soldiers is in my top three breakfasts well there we go <laughs> oh interestingly toast. breakfast so eggs and bacon for breakfast did you know that that's not really like a very old no. thing how could that pairing not have existed forever? Yeah, so it was actually a sort of publicity stunt. Wow. <laughs> it was deliberately done to try and get people to eat more bacon. Someone called Edward Bernays, who was actually the nephew of Sigmund Freud, and he worked in PR, and he was asked essentially to help sell more bacon. So they had this big survey. He wrote to 5,000 doctors asking them if a, if a heavy breakfast was better than a light breakfast. And 4,500 of them wrote back and said, well, actually, yeah, heavy breakfast is probably better. So they presented the study as sort of proof that eggs and bacon for breakfast was the ideal way. And all these physicians backed that fact. Extraordinary. And then that helps sell more bacon. Can yes. I say that the, uh, the one thing I can hopefully cook reasonably well is scrambled egg. And the secret of my scrambled egg, which I'm prepared to share <gasps> with both of you. Yeah, share it's it. a secret, which is to put in the late egg. So you do normal scrambled egg, just butter and the eggs and then get that nearly there and then drop in a late egg. I'd say I've eaten your scrambled egg, and it is it is very fine. There you are. Now you That's know why. That's a secret. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to have to go home and try that tomorrow. <laughs> so and I can talk about favorite egg fact? Because I thought yes. that one, the egg and bacon, was pretty good. Yes. That was going to be my favorite fact, I think, but I got so excited I had to share it. So I've got, <laughs> I've got several other ones. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think, actually, my next favorite fact is going to be the conundrum of the chicken and egg, which came first. And I haven't got the answer mm. to that. That would be great fact, final fact. But the first time that problem is recorded actually goes back to Plutarch, uh. the Greek philosopher. So it goes all the way back to sort of first or second century. And he was the one who first asked that question, or wrote it down at least. Goodness. Chicken and eggs. I don't know if he answered it, but at least he asked the question. He threw it out there. Yeah, he did, he did. So it's there we go. It's thought, isn't it, of... In antiquity, somebody's picking up an egg and looking at it and thinking, what came for? Exactly. <laughs> Same as us, really. The red jungle fowl or the egg? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe that's the way he went. <laughs> we had them. Um, we kept hens. We had black Orpingtons. Took about a year for them to lay, but then they laid. And once you've got used to home-laid eggs... Mm. Oh, wonderful. But you don't have you do get rats with eggs, with chickens. I mean, rats are an inevitable part of oh, it. Oh, because for a rat, it's just it's like a buffet. Yes. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, we had, and they all got wiped out by a fox recently, which is the normal way it goes. Maybe you should get ostriches. Well, yes, I wouldn't want an ostrich in a rage either. <laughs> no, that's true. Mind that's you, give point. the fox something to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, exactly. <laughs> Richard, your favourite egg dish, not soldiers and an egg, but your favourite egg dish, the omelette, is a French origin, came into use in the mid-16th century. But do you know where the origins of the omelette can be traced back to? No idea. Ancient Persia. We also know that the ancient Romans often combined eggs and dairy products into patine and custards and a variety of other sweet and savoury dishes. But ancient Persia is where the origins of your favourite egg-related dish are from. Thank you. So I think we're going to pass on to you now, actually, Charles. Um, <coughs> and I've shared as much as I can about eggs. So you're finally, your topic for this week was the Grand Tour, not the Amazon Road Car no. Show 1, the Going back original. A bit. Yeah, the original Grand Tour 
Well, that's an expression that came about in 1670 when a traveller referred to the Grand Tour. But I'm specifically really starting with the British concept of the Grand Tour, which really began in the 16th century. The idea that of travelling abroad has become a sort of consistent theme for, for British people on our blasted, windy isle. The idea of going abroad to study has always been something. In fact, the historian Edward Gibbon said, according to the law of custom and perhaps of reason, foreign travel completes the education of an English gentlemen. Although that sounds quite elitist, it was only the sons of the aristocracy and sometimes the daughters or the widows, but it was the rather more idle classes that could afford it. It was so expensive. There was so much hassle involved. The first stop on the Englishman's Grand Tour was pretty much always Paris. And going from Dover to Paris could take three days, just that part of the journey, you know, rough seas and rough roads. Are we talking the 1500s now? No, well, 1500s, you, you did have some. And so really, apart from the vagaries of travel, we had to deal with the wars that were going on yeah. in mainland Europe. So you find the trajectory of the Grand Tour started in a, in a very insignificant way, really, in the 16th century, survived the early 17th until 1618 to 1648. We have religious wars across most of Europe. And then by that stage, the English weren't travelling a lot unless they were exiled cavaliers of the Stuarts. So after the Restoration in 1660, it becomes much more popular, peaks in the 18th century, and then really fizzles out with the French Revolution in the late 18th century, followed by the Napoleonic Wars. So the traditional Grand Tour would have been sort of to Paris, then Lyon. Then you'd either take a boat on the Mediterranean, a ship on the Mediterranean, or brave the Alps and end up uh, going to Turin, maybe. And then the, the real destinations were Venice, where the ladies were considered particularly beautiful and, and actually quite available. Because part of the Grand Tour, it was meant to be educational, it was meant to be about... Well, originally, you're learning about fencing and riding and sort of martial arts. But by the second half of the 17th century, it was more to do with appreciation of art and accumulation of art. Yeah. In fact, there was, in the earliest part of the 17th century, there was the collector, Earl of Arundel, who actually dies as a in young middle age in Padua on yet another expedition. But by the time of his death, in, in his early 50s, he has accumulated an art collection of 700 paintings, an enormous number of sculptures, the remainder of which form the backbone of the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. But with him, you know, he, he really influenced art, not just by buying and bringing back, but also by taking with him Inigo Jones, who was completely transfixed by the uh, what he saw of Palladio, the 16th century Italian's architecture. And that came back as a, as a great influence. So it was really a gap year for very rich young people. And in fact, it would often go on for several years. People would pitch up with a letter of reference, an introduction to somebody royal or aristocratic or diplomatic who was saying, could you please keep me just for a little bit while I set up my household? And then you would set up a, a serious household of your own, maybe for years, as I say, in Paris, but heading to Rome. And then from 1738 and, and then 1748, Herculaneum and Pompeii opened up to the more adventurous traveller and things scattered in different directions. So Egypt came into play and Greece. But essentially, it was mainly about France and Italy for a very long time. And 
the wealth that enabled people to do this was created in England through trade, through the big landed estates. How did how did they manage to fund this very adventuresome, I guess, enterprise? Mm. Well, it was adventuresome. It was very expensive. You would go with what was considered, a, they called it a, a Cicerone, who would be a, a guide. And it could be a tutor or a reverend, somebody who was a safe pair of hands, who would take this uh, child abroad for a very long time with a household. So it was the traditional landed classes and merchants who could fund this. And before the prairies opened up, landed estates were really a license to print money. There was no competition. Because of fixing the price of corn. You could fix the price of whatever you had, really. And it was the opening up of the prairies in North America and then of refrigerated meat coming from South America, which caused the the problems for those estates. But in the golden age of the Grand Tour, I suppose that's great news for what we now enjoy in museum collections. Because I imagine the National Gallery, National Portrait Gallery, British Museum, a lot of that stuff was originally brought back by people from Grand Tour. That's true. And even more to the point, there weren't any museums in England. Mm. You know, the Duke of Devonshire might let you look round Chatsworth, but there weren't museums by this stage. So you couldn't, as a, a genuinely interested aesthetic go to somewhere in London and, and look around a museum. But you could travel to Florence and go around the Uffizi Palace if you slip the right amount of silver into the caretaker's pocket. The, the reciprocal thing is so fascinating, is as you say, Inigo Jones, but other painters, or if you were an enterprising, up-and-coming, intelligent person, you could go as secretary, couldn't you? Yes, but also you generated an interest in art mm. and you propped up artist's income. Canaletto... The main work that he churned out of uh, Venetian scenes, that was done as mementos for the visiting British aristocracy. Other great Italian artists, such as Maratti and Bottoni, they would do the portraits of these young men as they or women as they visited. Um, they would flatter them too. So they would be dressed in the garb of an ancient Roman or surrounded by symbols of their huge intelligence and talents. You know, a cunningly placed cello in the background would show that you were a person of great civilization and and intelligence. I think also, so you talked about sort of the artists, but actually also the interest in history. As you said, there weren't museums, Mm. but actually a lot of these people who went on these tours also drew things, they illustrated, they took the knowledge back on on the antiquities and the monuments back to England. So the study of that internationally, that that really starts off with that. Well, you're talking as a bona fide academic. A lot of them just went to behave incredibly badly away from their parents. There there was uh, brothels everywhere, hard drinking. I had an ancestor, Robert Spencer, who died as a 27-year-old having lived in Paris lived very hard in Paris and died as a young man from hard living. But he was supposedly imbibing the, the great beauties of uh, Parisian culture. But in fact, he was just getting drunk. You wonder if they brought back not only treasures, but perhaps also venereal diseases. <laughs> yes, as well. I think there was a lot of <laughs> that. Be, yeah. They spread a lot of Here's a question. So my sense of the Grand Tour is of people from a rainy, windswept, rather grey archipelago in northern Europe, going south, heading to the sun, seeing Paris, seeing Rome, seeing mm-hmm. Milan, all these kind of glorious things, all lit and wonderful. Did they go to the low countries? Did they go and have a look at 
Amsterdam, Bruges, Antwerp? Did they go and see the glories of the Dutch Golden Age? Or was that not on the itinerary? Well, it was, but that was not considered classically grand tour. The most important was Paris. Yeah. Uh, French was a language that they had learned, but also Italy was a very big deal because they had learned supposedly a bit of Latin. Only when travel got difficult in France and Italy did they spread a little further afield. There were also, I mentioned at the beginning, you know, I'm talking about this from an Englishman's point of view, but there were relatively wealthy Scandinavians and Germans and even Americans who undertook their version of the Grand Tour as well. Well, Susan, I'm worried about that. You have so many significant figures in American art, music, literature were in Paris in the 1950s because the dollar stretched, right? And yes. you could fund a long sojourn in somewhere like Paris. You get those wonderful stories of Americans brushing up alongside Picasso and uh, Cocteau and Lysis and all that. There was also derision. So politicians, a lot of politicians in England were unhappy about this trend because a lot of money was being spent overseas and they wanted these men to stay behind and, and concentrate on buying English things. Oh. And so one of the terms of mockery for those who came back from Italy with a high wig or tight trousers, which were thought a bit odd. Uh, they were called macaronis. That was a that was an insult for these people who had gone Italian. Well, that was actually an early code word for gay. Oh, right. Or what we would now call gay. They didn't have the word there. But sort of homosexual men were referred to as macaronis hmm. because perhaps they were made of feet by this yes. exposure to the kind of luxury and... Um, sensuality of yes i think maybe you've got something to say about that have you a disembodied voice charles talked about how you paid for the grand tour but one other way of doing it was that people restricted financially could depend on the queen herself for support the queen actually chose to aid young courtiers on their tours abroad with the understanding that when they returned they would advise her on foreign affairs based on their experiences well, it's the beginning mm -hmm. of the diplomatic service, yeah. I guess. Yes. Sounds like yeah. it, doesn't it? I'd Student loan. <laughs> I'd love to have been a diplomat in the days before people just phoned each other up, when you actually... Be there. Yeah. yeah. One of my jobs was <laughs> to work as a language teacher for a defence attaché to Norway. Oh, really? They had to have six months of language training. To in Norwegian? Country. Yeah. Wow, that's a job, isn't it? Yeah, it's quite a lot. What's the first lesson? What's the first thing? We did start with, hi. Hi. <laughs> Good dog. Good dog. So we started with that and then we had to go into sort of military language and weapons, which is not really my forte, but I had to learn a lot about. <laughs> I was interested in this about, when I was in um, in the Netherlands and I tried to learn, Dutch was ridiculous because no one was going to help. But I was, the first lesson was, een schip, twee schepen. Een schip, and all those little things that you first mm. learn a language mm. with. Yeah. Latin in Mensa. school. Yeah. Mensa was Latin, wasn't yeah. it? And Matt. At my school, we, we were given audiovisual brainwashing for a year to do German O-level. Oh, not in a language lab sort yes. of thing. And I can still remember the presenters, etc. They're, they're absolutely seared onto my mind. Well, do you remember Hank Le Trappeau? Yes, absolutely. Do you have an oh, Hank Le Trappeau? Yes. Canadian. <laughs> it's one of the ways you learn French. With That's right. Hank Le we all called yeah. him all Hank Le Crapper. We all called him how hilarious <laughs> we were. So what about Norway? What about English? You're learning English. What's the first lesson? Mm, so we started learning that one about nine or ten. Quite remember. I mean, you start with sort of greetings and things. Quite, quite sort of and dull. Words to do with invasion. Invasion. Going you know back. how to <laughs> kill monks in a monastery. Yeah, that sort of thing. Where are yeah. your treasures? Where is the nearest monastery? <laughs> <laughs> Where can I park my longship? Interesting that all of us in our different configurations belong to stories of conquest and plunder, don't we? Yeah. Yes. Well, the I world is conquest and plunder. Most places around the world. Yeah. 
So other things that came back, you know, we so I, I mentioned Inigo Jones's appreciation of classicism and and great art collections, but even the Hope Diamond that was uh, bought on a, on a grand tour as well. So a lot of things came back to England as a result of this affectation by the upper classes. I think there's a corollary to this in our own time, and it's food. Huh? Elizabeth David, all those people who revolutionised the middle-class diet and middle-class ambitions to cook in an era when fewer people had servants and were discovering kitchens for themselves. It was the South she went to. It was mm. Italy. It was, it was French provincial cookery. It was Mediterranean cookery. And sort of the badge of your sophistication in the 60s and the 70s, even in catering, was your <laughs> aplomb at handling dishes that yes. came from Italy. the South and trying to find... Olive oil and clove of garlic. Good yeah. luck with that. Yeah, I remember, I remember when yogurt came to Kettering. Yes, I remember my sister Jane coming back. She'd been to Covent Garden early one morning. She came back with this very strange, hard green thing, which was called an avocado pear. Goodness me! It wasn't called an avocado. It was an avocado pear. And we didn't know what to do with it. But let's think about that. In if you were living on a grand estate like um, like Altrup in the say nineteen hundred around mm. then, when you had like teams of gardeners and hot houses mm. and all that kind of thing. The diet you would be eating, presumably that would enable you to eat the kind of things that normally you wouldn't be able to grow, right? Yes. Mm. So stuff from the south that would come. And things like pineapples and things becoming so popular and becoming big. My great great grandfather, who sort of flourished in the 1850s, wrote about this disgusting thing he had been given called a banana. I don't know how he tackled it, but he didn't enjoy it. (laughs) But he thought that was absolutely absurd and sort of, you know, foreign muck sort of thing. Did he and not go travelling on a grand he was, tour then? He, he was not. He travelled in a battleship. I think that's where he was happiest. Yeah. I've got a question. Yes. Controversial. Mm. So some would say that English wealth and English travellers and English privileged people looted um, the southern states of Europe, perhaps, and came up with all this stuff. Now, there's a constant argument, isn't there, with them um, about where the mm. stuff that we have in our museums and treasure and conserve and put on exhibition, where that comes from. Is there a moral case, do you think, for restoring to the lands they come from the stuff that we took home for our own enjoyment? Well, from what I've seen in the Grand Tour, the people who sold, sold at a very good price. They knew their market. They knew these Englishmen were a soft touch, as it were. So I think there, there was an awful lot of uh, willing sellers and a thriving market in taking advantage of these peripatetic Englishmen who had too much money and not a lot of sense. What's your fact, your favourite fact? The real death now of the Grand Tour was the train, uh. and in particular, Cook's Tours. So the train made travel accessible for a lot more people, and Cook's Tours started in 1841 with Thomas Cook deciding to commandeer a train to take some fellow temperance campaigners from Leicester to Loughborough for a for a meeting. So mm-hmm. yes, yeah, so that was that must have been a fun trip. <laughs> but essentially Thomas Cook and the train killed the Grand Tour off. Very well that's interesting because when I was growing up, the thing you did after finishing school was to go on an interrail. Journey. I did so, interrail, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was the sort of the train journey. Was that was the hundred sort of... quid? Just it was ninety eight quid to go around Europe for a month. Yeah, and that was the kind of modern version of a, a grand tour. I well, suppose. I wasn't. Mine wasn't grand. I ended up sleeping <laughs> in a morgue in uh, a place called Poor Boo, which is just one side of the Pyrenees. What were you doing there? Well, we'd run out of money. I was with three friends, and we we you know how the the rock's so tough, you have to you know bury in stacks above, and we we slept on top there. And uh, it was quite hard work. It wasn't a very grand tour, but it was a fun tour. It was a tour. Yes. <laughs> I can remember that. It's a 
running out of money and yeah and yeah. being in fourth class or whatever it I think was that's, yeah that became the standard of a tour really lovely thing to do just but why with, don't we do it we should do yeah, we should we do, do a podcast sort of, on, on why don't on, we on do tour? a grand yeah. tour it'd be great i think that's a brilliant idea I understand let's not going slip to be in a, tombs maybe but i think there's going to be a vacancy under that slot in amazon before we, <laughs> <laughs> we should talk to the disembodied voice about that yeah. i'm all in for it <laughs> So, having all finished our topics for this week, we've got to the final stage, Richard, where we find out (laughs) who this week has won. So our disembodied voice of our producer will completely undemocratically choose a winner. And so, this week's champion is... Richard, it's not you. (laughs) (laughs) That was really cruel. It's going to be Charles. It's very close, but it was Charles. Bravo. It's his interrailing stories. Congratulations. Like interrailing it was story. a team, wasn't it? <laughs> interrailing, the other things. interrailing in necropolises of <laughs> Southern Europe. So that's what we need to do. We need to come up with some revelation. That's what we're not doing well enough, I think. Right. Never I mind. I've led, led a sheltered existence, Kat. Yeah, well, <laughs> never mind. So before we go and say goodbye for this week, we've got to reveal the next week's subjects. Charles, so first time in this show, uh, you've not got an object, Mm -hmm. but you've got a person. Hmm. So you are going to find out everything you can possibly know about Evelyn Waugh. Fantastic. And Richard. So we'd all like to be educated on a subject quite close to your heart, which is the Dachshund. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Who are you? Well, I am going to fall down another rabbit hole, uh, which is going to be pain relief, which I might need after. <laughs> <laughs> after hearing about Daxons and Evelyn Walk. <laughs> those two. We'll see. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you to my fellow rabbit holers for your facts and to all our listeners. Please do subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review to help other people find us. You can also let us know what other rabbit holes you might like us to go down in future episodes. So finally, in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice, every adventure requires a first step. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. (laughs) 